Brethren, I invite you to turn back just one chapter from our first scripture reading. Actually, two chapters, Exodus 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 50 and read through chapter 13, verse 3. That will be our text. I'll also be reading a portion of Acts chapter 2. Again, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 50. Once again, brethren, hear the very words of God. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord, he brought you out of this place. Now from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on this throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which, was na- which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, once again, as we consider covenant baptism this day and celebrate that with the baptism of one of your covenant children, we pray your blessings upon this service. I pray your understanding would be greatened and heightened in your people as we delve into your scriptures and look at these passages. We pray, Father, that we would yield to the teachings of your scriptures and do it with glad hearts. For you teach us graciously righteousness. And Father, help us to thirst after righteousness. And we ask this in the name of our strong Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, for the benefit of our visitors, I forgot one announcement, I'll make it now. There are no bathrooms in this building. 
but there are in the building next to us. So if you need to go next door, you can either go out the back door or there's a door to my left here that you can go across to the, to the other building. All right. Today we do have the great privilege to witness the baptism of a, of a covenant child in our midst. And it happens to be my granddaughter too. That's pretty exciting. For some, particularly those from baptistic backgrounds, this may seem to be an odd event. Some may even be so bold as to say this practice is against what the Scriptures teach. There was a day in my life when I believed that very notion, that infant baptism was not taught in the Scriptures. But over the years of study that I have committed to the Scriptures, I have come to believe that is, to believe that is most assuredly not the case when we look at the breadth of God's holy writ and yield to the breadth of His words. It is true that to come to such a position necessarily requires a robust understanding of how God deals with men by and through covenants. And today I will mention God's covenants and will speak about the signs and seals that attend His covenants. However, time does not permit an exhaustive treatment of God's covenants. Today we'll consider but two, the covenant He made with Moses and the new covenant in Christ Jesus. We will consider those two covenants with particular attention to the new covenant that God has established in Jesus our Savior, and later, those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ uh, will come to His table where He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so, this day, we are going to not only hear about the covenants, we are going to practice the covenant, the new covenant in Christ Jesus. It is my hope at the end of today's sermon that each of us will have a greater appreciation for God's sovereign hand being at work in our lives individually, the lives of our families, but but most importantly, the building of His kingdom from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And at the end of the sermon and at the end of the day, Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Our passage from Exodus 13 might seem like an odd place to go to talk about covenant baptism. Well, it is a bit, but I think I'll I'll, I'll bring some clarity to that in a few moments. Exodus 13 comes at a time in the history of Israel when God, by His outstretched arm and His mighty hand, deposes an arrogant Pharaoh and elevates His own special people. The very night before our passage, the angel of death passed through Egypt and struck down the firstborn of men and beasts throughout the entire country. The exception being the firstborn of those who had the blood of a Passover lamb spread on the doorposts and lintels of their homes. From those households, the firstborn were delivered or saved from judgment. I want us to pause for just a moment and consider the ramification of these actions, both by men and by the Almighty God. God had forewarned all of Egypt and the children of Israel that a coming judgment was at hand and the firstborn of men and beasts would die by the very hand of God, absent an intervening act of faith. If you believed God and His messenger, you were to place the blood of a lamb on your doorpost and lintel. By the way, children, the lintel is the upper part of the door that goes across the top. 
You were to place the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and lintel, and when God's hand of judgment came to your doorstep, he would pass over you. In other words, you were to be marked out for the grace of God by an act of faith. Now let's consider who was at risk. Were the firstborn children of Israel at risk? Indeed they were. Were the firstborn of the Egyptians at risk? Indeed they too were at risk. Were the firstborn of all the beasts of the field at risk? According to God, they were as well. All the firstborn of men and beasts of Egypt and Israel, all were at risk. Now let's consider who would be saved from the judgment of God. Would the Israelites, who by faith properly applying the blood of a lamb be saved? Indeed they would. What about the Egyptians? Would they have been saved from the death angel's mighty hand had they too properly used the blood of a Passover lamb? I believe they would have, but our scriptures, as far as I know, are silent on this point. But what about the firstborn of the beasts of an Israelite or an Egyptian? Again, had the blood of a Passover lamb been used, the death angel would have passed over that particular household, both man and beast. Now let's notice together that God's declaration of the use of blood from the Passover lamb was efficacious, regardless of who placed the blood on the doorpost and lintel. Now, I don't mean regardless of what, whether it be Israelites or Egyptians. What I'm saying is, for those who had believing households, it didn't really matter who in the household did it. In Exodus 12, 1-7, we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now notice these last two sentences. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Notice that it was the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Does this mean that everybody had to have their hand on the knife when that lamb was slaughtered? I think not. Infants could not have done that. What about nursing mothers? They couldn't come away to do that work. Or orphaned children who had no guidance on what they were doing. Not everyone could participate in the slaughter, and yet the whole congregation of the people of Israel shall kill at twilight. This passage likely assumes the patriarch of the household would have had to kill the lamb and place the blood on the doorposts and lintel. But what about a matriarch? A woman whose husband was an unbeliever. Could she do it? I think that would be the case. Or what about an older child 
who hears these words from God in Moses' tongue, but his parents are unbelieving. Could he do it? I believe he could have. In other words, someone had to have faith to place the sign of God's promise on the doorpost and lintel of the house. Somebody had to act by faith. Somebody had to believe God and do the deed. God would determine the efficacy of the sign, but someone had to act by faith. And I'll come back, back to this point in a few minutes. I want us to also notice that this act of faith would be efficacious for the firstborn of the beasts of the field as well. I want to just give a little emphasis to this. And why is this important? Isn't this merely a coincidental circumstance because God said the firstborn of of man and beast will be saved? I don't think it's coincidental. I think it's very intentional. God is teaching the peoples of the world an eternal lesson with this account of judgment on Egypt and deliverance for His chosen people. He is teaching the entire world that He governs all things, the righteous as well as the wicked. He's teaching that He judges wickedness and that He provides a means of salvation to a believing people. A believing people. Furthermore, God is teaching everyone that salvation for His chosen people affects not only their individual lives, but everything they touch, including the creation. This is clarified for us in the New Testament in Romans 8, verses 19-21, through 21, where we read these words, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, salvation doesn't just come to us individually. It touches everything we touch. We egalitarian North Americans think salvation is only about us individually. We often think that. With this perspective, we show our arrogance and our ignorance. It is not just about us individually. God's salvation touches everything. It touches us individually. It touches our families and the creation God made, which He spoke into existence and is all around us. Brethren, think about this. We, the first commandment given to Adam was to fill the earth and do what? Subdue it. The righteous man, Adam before the fall, was to affect in a very positive way all the creation around him. That was lost when he fell into sin and was cursed by God, both he and the creation. But it was restored in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. God's salvation touches everything. Presumably, in our passage, the faithful father would apply the covenant sign on the doorpost and lintel, and God would honor the faithfulness of the father to the firstborn of men and beasts. Now, it wasn't just the firstborn men that would die. It was the firstborn of any family. So you eldest daughters in the congregation... That would have included you. And yet, somebody had to do a faithful act. 
Somebody had to perform that faithful act that God would keep that promise to that household. Now, before I go further, I must make mention that what I am not teaching is that God saves children because of the faith of their fathers. I am not telling you that. But to participate in God's salvation was made clear to us by Jesus. Jesus said, you must be born again. Each one of you must be born again. Everyone must believe to be delivered from sin, must believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and His efficacious blood from the Paschal Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Everyone must believe to be delivered from sin and its corresponding judgment. So what I am saying is that God saves children with the same kind of faith in God, which is often exhibited by fathers and mothers. In other words, faith is shown to the next generation through acts of faithfulness. But true saving faith must be embraced by the children of faithful parents for it to be efficacious. In our passage, the faithfulness of parents protected those young children until the day they could exhibit true faith themselves. Herein is a great irony with that particular generation of Israelites. They painted their doorposts and lintels with the blood of the Passover lambs, and the irony is this, that very generation would die in the wilderness for being unfaithful to God. And it was the next generation that was born after this Passover event that would live through that wilderness wandering and possess the land which God had promised His faithful children. That generation believed when their parents abandoned the faith in the wilderness. Now I want to come back to the faithfulness of the Egyptians, and, or the faithlessness of the Egyptians, I need to be careful there, the faithlessness of the Egyptians, and the faithful, faithfulness of the Israelites. Brethren, God is teaching us here that faithlessness and faithfulness can transcend we as individuals. The faithlessness of the Egyptians condemned not only themselves, but their firstborn children and the firstborn of their livestock. <coughs> Excuse me. Similarly, the faithfulness of the Israelites extended to their children and their livestock in this circumstance. And such was and is the case with the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam was in covenant with God in the Garden of Eden, and his faithlessness brought condemnation on all his posterity and a curse on the creation. We are the sons and daughters of Adam, and we die because of that. His actions affect us. The second Adam's faith and sacrificial blood that brings eternal life to all who believe affect us as well. Only the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world can bring deliverance to those who believe. His blood brings a similar effect to bear on the creation itself as we saw earlier from Romans 8. So you see, brethren, these are, this is what we call federalism. Federalism. The actions of a few who lead us, go before us, 
who represent us affect us. And that's the case with Adam. We are federally dead in Adam, and we are made federally alive in Christ. Where do we use that term most often? Federal government, isn't it? Well, our leaders act on behalf of the whole of our nation. Whether for good or ill, their actions affect us. Just as the dismissive arrogance brought judgment on the Egyptians and the blood painted rightly on the doorpost and lintel brought salvation to the people of Israel, each was affected by the actions of a few, their respective federal heads. Now I want to turn our attention to the phrase that I've chosen for the title of the sermon. It comes from verse 2 of our text. Hear hear that portion of the text once again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. Let that declaration sink in. Whatever opens the womb of the children of Israel, whether man or beast, it is mine, God says. It belongs to me. And everything that attends that notion must flow into our minds from the Scriptures. What is God's is God's and should be honored as such. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord, He brought you out of this place. Brethren, God's chosen people, the children of Israel, of whatever opened the womb, both men and beasts, are God's possession. God wanted all Israel to consecrate the firstborn, for they represented the entire people of God. The firstborn were the federal heads, just as Adam was the, federal, uh, was the firstborn of the head of all mankind. God possesses all His chosen people. They are His, He declares. Yet, the firstborn were to be consecrated. Why? Because they represented all His chosen people, both men and beasts. This makes understandable Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15 where we read, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now let's fast forward to the end of the Old Testament. To the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 6. And then we'll go to the New Covenant, Acts chapter 2. Consider the last book of the Old Testament. God reminds His covenant people with these words in Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. I am the Lord, I do not change. God is saying these words through His prophet Malachi. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Here God claims to be immutable, and He is. He never changes. He also couches this declaration with the circumstance of deliverance for the sons of Jacob. Aren't those the same sons of Jacob that we saw in Exodus 13 who participated in God's deliverance at Passover? Indeed, they are. 
The very sons of Jacob who fled to Egypt during the famine of Joseph's day were the sons of Jacob who 400 years later were delivered from Pharaoh's bondage. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. (coughs) O sons of Jacob. After Malachi wrote these words, another 400 years would pass from, uh, would pass until the next Adam, the second Adam would come as the Paschal Lamb, the Messiah, the eternal firstborn Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by His stripes, the Bible teaches us, we are healed. It is this same Jesus that Peter declares to the sons of Jacob at Pentecost in Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Brethren, Jesus came to sprinkle His blood at the mercy seat of God that the death angel would pass over us at the final judgment. And who is this promise for? Well, according to verse 39 in Acts 2, much like that of Exodus 13, the promise is to us and to our children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. Now I want us to consider this new covenant proclamation and its effects as we close. Brethren, in light of the old covenant example, this example that we just saw in Exodus chapter 13, Remember, whatever opens the womb is mine, God says. Who was blessed by the sign of the covenant in the Old Covenant? Who was blessed? Was it not the families and beasts of the sons of Jacob? God's covenant people? The firstborn of the families and the beasts, regardless of age, were preserved. In verse 39 of Acts, we see God's declaration at the promise of deliverance is for us and for our children. Now let me ask this question. Which is greater and which is lesser? Is the promise greater than the sign? The sign of the promise? Or is the sign greater than the promise itself? Remember in this passage, the promise is for you and for your children. What was, what was to be put on the, those people? the sign of the promise, baptism. Which is greater? The promise or the sign of the promise? I would say the promise is the greater of the two, is it not? The sign merely points to the thing, but the promise itself is the greater of the two. If the promise, the greater thing, is for us and our children according to the Scriptures, the promise itself is for us and for our children Shouldn't the lesser thing, the sign of the promise, be for us and our children as well? If the greater thing is for us and our children, shouldn't the lesser thing be for us and our children? 
How can we deny to a never-changing God the very signs of His deliverance to those He has given the promise of deliverance? Us and our children. Brethren, our covenant children have received a promise from the Almighty God. Let us act by faith as the Israelites did in the day of the Passover and be sure that they receive the sign of that promise. Let us pray together.